0: Our scripture text this morning is Luke 7, verses 1 to 17. That can be found on page 1098 in your pew Bibles. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Lord God, we come before you. And we pray that we would see in this text what you have revealed to us about our Savior, that we would see what true faith and marvelous faith is, that we would see the compassion of our Lord, that we would trust in it with a marvelous faith ourselves, that we would be encouraged, that you would strengthen the hearers and the one who is speaking, that this service would be one to glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 7, beginning in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This sends the reading of God's word. Such faith, do not weep, arise. Such faith, do not weep, arise. These are the few words that Jesus says in this passage. As I was preparing for this message in preparation, reading through texts, one of the texts was a red-letter Bible where, where Jesus' words are highlighted in red ink. And though I think all of the Bible is truly God's word and Jesus' words, in this case it was helpful in the way that the ink highlighted the fact that Jesus doesn't say much in these accounts, in these stories, in these narratives. What he says has significant import, significant meaning, But it's mostly the story itself that conveys a truth. Not so much what Jesus said. We have just finished the the Sermon on the Mount. We have just finished long teaching blocks of Jesus, where if you were again, let's use the the red-letter Bible, it's all red, it's all his, his teaching, it's all his doctrine and proclamation to the people. But here now we shift to two stories, two stories that convey truths of faith, of compassion, and of God's power and identity, of Jesus' power and identity. I want you just to look, we're not going to look at all of chapter 7 today, we're looking at the first half of it, but I want you to see how it's broken down. So if you look at your Bibles, you'll see verses 1 through 10 deal with the centurion's faith, and so it's a story of faith. Verses 11 through 17 deals with the compassion of the Lord, but especially his identity. You see them question, this must be a great prophet, as well as one who has power to do these things. So it's a story of the identity of Jesus. That's followed by messengers from John the Baptist in verses 18 to 35. And that has the question, Jesus, are you the one to come, or should we wait for another? So here's another story of Jesus' identity. And then it ends with a sinful woman forgiven, the sinful woman who comes and anoints Jesus and wipes his feet with her tears, and it's a story of faith. And so the way chapter 7 sort of plays out is it's a story of faith, two stories of identity, and then ends with another story of faith. We're going to look at the first two of those, faith and the identity of Jesus today. Jesus has ended his sermon And he had ended it with a call to be built on the foundation, the strong foundation, which is obedience to him and his word, to trust in him, to be built there and to not shake then, because you're founded on him and his word. And now we see the, the very building blocks of that foundation in faith, but it comes from a surprising source, as do all of these stories have surprising aspects to them. We see of a centurion, a Gentile, who has a marvelous faith, a faith that makes Jesus marvel and wonder. We see John the Baptist ask questions, and Jesus proves to him his identity as the one who heals the poor and lowly. And we see that in our text with this this widow who's just lost her son, who's the lowest of the low and has nothing now. And Jesus administers to her a peace that surpasses understanding, proving his identity and who he is. We see his well at the end of the chapter, Jesus ministered to the sinful woman, a known sinner. So in this chapter, he's dealing with the unlikely candidates of faith as well as the benefits of his ministry, of his grace and mercy. And I hope that strikes a chord with you. Even now we sit here and are administered and and hear and receive a blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ to the unlikely candidates that we are. That we are a grouping, a body of Christ, a church that hadn't deserved this, didn't deserve this, are the outcasts, can be as long as we truly trust in the Lord, called the, the poor in spirit. Those that didn't deserve it and yet... Here we are, receiving marks of faith, and indeed marvelous faith. Receiving compassion from the Lord, knowing his identity. You see, these stories are here to present to us what we've all experienced, to present the reality of the truth of what Jesus has come to do, and what we partake of, even at this moment, what we partake of every day we see this compassion and this love and this faith. And we'll begin with the centurion's faith. Faith is the major concern of this story, more so than the healing that takes place itself. In fact, the healing is highlighted, but it's only highlighted in ways to magnify the faith of this Gentile, of this centurion. We learn that Jesus' authority and power is highlighted in such a way to give that that description of faith to this centurion. We see what happens. Jesus comes to Capernaum, and and as he approaches and is there, this centurion hears of it, and he has a problem. His slave, as the text said, who was highly valued by him is near death. What do we mean by highly valued? What does that mean? Does it mean that he just as a slave owner didn't want to lose a valuable asset? Is that what's going on here? We can say certainly not. The context shows you that rather he really cherished this servant, which already is setting him apart from what we would understand as a traditional Gentile centurion slave master. He cares for his slave. He's going through a lot of trouble, even humbling himself to, to, so that this slave of his, who he highly cherishes, would be healed. That says something about his character. This by itself is impactful in an era where slaves were not especially regarded in the Gentile world, and yet this centurion regards his slave And the insight into this centurion becomes more surprising when we read how the Jewish elders came to Jesus and pleaded on his behalf. The text says that they come to him and tell Jesus, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who's built us our synagogue. The Jewish elders are coming on behalf of this centurion, this Gentile centurion, and they're pleading for the Lord to come and do this. But notice what they put in front of the Lord He's worthy. Look what he's done. He's built the synagogue. He, he honors and regards our nation. They try to put his worth, and they respect that. What does this tell us about the centurion? It means he respected their religion. He respected the Jewish nation. Clearly, he built their synagogue. He seems to respect the Jewish God himself. Can we say then that he was a follower? Did he Was he a full convert? We shouldn't say that. Likely what this text is saying is that this centurion was one who highly regarded and respected the Jews who had been somewhat acquainted with what had gone on, but probably not a proselyte, not a full convert. But as the story progresses, note the contrast. Note the contrast between the Jewish elders' approach and the centurions. The the Jewish elders come, he's worthy, do this. But then when the centurion hears about it, he who had sent the elders thinking, this would be better, I'll send to this great rabbi and Jewish teacher, these Jewish elders, rather he has to fix the problem that he sees. So he sends some of his own friends to tell them, don't have him come here. I am unworthy i unworthy for you to come to me. Note the contrast. The, the Jews are saying he is worthy. And the centurion, as Jesus is on the way, hears of this. Likely someone ran back and told him what the Jews had said and that Jesus is coming and he wants to fix this. I am not worthy. And then he explains that he understands authority. He is one who wields authority. He has authority. Authority. He's been under it. He, he understands all the in and outs of it. And then he gives that authority to Jesus himself. Now he uses his examples. Listen, I know, I know authority. I'm one who wields it. I'm one under it. I tell my servants, go and do this. I tell my soldiers, go and do that. And they do it without question. They do it at my command. And then he affords to Jesus that very power over a life-threatening disease and illness. He says, Jesus, you don't need to come here. Heal my servant at your word, because his authority, because Jesus' authority is as such that even the forces of nature, of health, of life, and death are as bound to Jesus as his, his soldiers are to him. See, now we start to see that this is indeed marvelous faith. This is indeed a faith that, that puts Jesus front and center and attracts from himself. He recognizes Jesus' authority. He's not worthy at all, and Jesus marvels and tells around those around him, "I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith." What's so special about this faith? Why does it cause Jesus to marvel? Here's where we start seeing elements of the true faith, the ingredients of what our faith needs to be as well. It's mirroring what is part of every faith and should be a part of every true faith. First, humility. Humility, a recognition of being unworthy. Again, this is in contrast to what we've seen with the Jews so far. We've seen in them try to put down the unworthy and raise up themselves as worthy. That's the tactic the Jewish elders of the synagogue even take. He should receive your blessing, Lord, because he's done these things. And the centurion says, I shouldn't receive the blessings, O Lord, because I've done nothing but heal." Show your power, show your authority. It's humble, it's a humble recognition. And all faith must be a humble faith. It doesn't stand on what we've done. It says with the centurion, I am unworthy. It's humble in so many ways. A man who has this power, who has strength behind him, puts himself below this Jewish rabbi, Puts him far above himself. And he's not even one of the people. Deep, deep humility. But there's also another element of this marvelous faith, and it's trust. It's simple trust. What do I mean by simple trust? It's so, you might miss it if you read the text, it's so simple. He's not doubting. He doesn't say, Lord, I don't know that you can do this. He doesn't need proofs. That's what the Jews had needed, all these proofs of the Lord. They had seen him do marvelous things and still hadn't believed, but the centurion doesn't ask for any of that. He just trusts and knows that Jesus can do it. That's not in doubt. That's even seen from that spatial limitation. He has so much trust and confidence in the power and authority of the word of Jesus Christ that he says, you don't even need to come here. You don't even need to be an eyesight of this. Just command it. It's a confidence. It's an assurance. That's part of faith, too. The centurion recognizes that God's very power works through Jesus himself. Humility mixed with deep faith describes what Jesus praises. And notice in the commendation or the praise that Jesus makes about the centurion, what what it means is it's an indirect call to trust in him in a similar way. The question in effect is, will you trust as the centurion has? Such faith brings Jesus' approval by putting it forward as an example and to say, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel, that, that even my own people who I've come to, they don't trust me like this. They don't place this faith in me like this. It means we should. This is the faith. Now, we don't know to what degree this centurion placed saving faith in Jesus. Saving faith? I like to think he He did. But that's not really what the text is, is highlighting, per se. What it's really highlighting is, is in this activity, in this action, in this story, is what makes up a faith that is the ones we seek to mirror, meaning that deep humility, meaning that deep trust. He acknowledged in Jesus the power of God, and it, caught, it caused Jesus to marvel because he believed with such trust, such humility, such assurance likely with very little doctrinal training. And this is, again, where we see how great a faith is a simple faith. That's not to put down teaching, but what we see is that you don't need to be possessed of of great mental capacities or great understanding to cause Jesus to marvel. What causes Jesus to marvel? It's not that the centurion sort of whipped out of his back pocket all of this knowledge, and told the elders to tell Jesus this. Tell him this passage says this, and it's connected to this one. And in the original Hebrew, it must have meant this, and blah, 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 and go send that to Jesus. That's not, and still isn't, what causes Jesus to marvel, what causes God to marvel. What does? A trust? A humble faith that puts ourselves down and looks only to Christ? In this story, in the centurion's words, Jesus is front and center. Even though, as we said in the beginning, Jesus isn't hardly speaking. Why is Jesus front and center? Because the centurion puts him there. By the very fact that he depreciates himself and appreciates Jesus, and all that he does, he's highlighting something wondrous about Jesus and about his purpose We aren't to look for constant proofs to verify Jesus' identity. We don't need to do any of that. What we need to do is just trust what he says and cling to it, and then you and I as well can, in this way, make Jesus marvel. Make Jesus marvel at simple trust, a firm faith, Jesus is fulfilling the word Simeon had prophesied that he would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This is the first encounter in Luke's gospel gospel, where a Gentile responds to Jesus. And it's a marvelous faith. So marvelous because it was so simple, so humble, so trusting. And that's what makes our faith marvelous to Jesus is when it's totally on him. That's faith. That's true faith. That's the first element, then, in this story. Faith. Faith that puts Jesus front and center. But now we turn to the next story. Next story, Jesus' identity. And so it ties in. Don't, we won't obviously forget what we just looked at. This was a story of faith. Now we look at Jesus' identity and especially an aspect of compassion. There are similarities in these two stories, Jesus had just healed from a life-threatening disease, but now he comes to one dead. He had just dealt with an outcast Gentile, and now he deals with the lowly widow who has lost her son. As we already said, this is to be without any security. This has lost everything. Not only is this poor woman dealing with the loss of her only son, She's dealing with the loss of all that she owned and had, all her security, all her future. That's what's compounding this as well. And in this story, we see great compassion as well. And I want us to to have this in our minds. I really like the way one commentator described this. This scene at Nain conveys something, and what it conveys is when the way of life meets the way of death when the way of life meets the way of death. And it happens in the narrative. It's beautifully told. Jesus in this procession, his disciples and a crowd is with him. He's heading to this town, Nain. And of all things, right? This is the way the providence of God works. It it just so happens that as Jesus is approaching the entrance to this town and city, out comes this funeral procession. This sad procession. You can imagine the sorrow and grief. Again, not only is it the loss of life, which is just sad and in and of itself, it's this woman who has lost all. Burial in that day and age was quick. It usually wouldn't go beyond 24 hours. You needed to get the body in the ground. And so the son's death is quite recent. The body would be wrapped in perfumed burial strips and the body would be placed on something like a stretcher and carried out to be laid in a grave or tomb or wherever the the place had been prepared. A sad procession and the whole town had gathered. The whole town is there and, and you can just imagine the mourning there of this woman. She's lost everything. And as Jesus draws near to the gate of the town... We see the way of life meeting the way of death. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. There is one man who should say that at a funeral. Jesus. We should never say that. We have no right to How dare we go to a woman who's lost everything and lost her son, her only begotten son, and say, Don't weep. We can't say that. Nor should we. But Jesus can. Because he's the way of life. And he's encountering the way of death. And unlike us, when we go to visitations and funerals, even as we saw in the Hiscus funeral yesterday. When we go there, we have no power to go up to the casket and say, Arise! That's it for us. We grieve and mourn, and that's the best we can do, but not for Jesus. There's so much in that verse about the heart of your Savior. This widow didn't ask him for anything and in fact was, was probably, yes, this is speculative, but was probably annoyed that, that her grief should be interrupted, that she can't even lay her son in, in the ground in peace. And here comes this crowd, and here comes this man, and, and, and up to the stretcher, and up to her, and, and to say, do not weep. But why does Jesus do it? She didn't ask anything. It was unrequested. She did nothing. And no one is beseeching on her behalf. There's no Jewish elders here saying, do this for the widow. The town doesn't come to Jesus and fall on their feet and say, please help this woman. Why does Jesus raise from the dead? Compassion. When our Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He said, Do not weep. Never doubt the compassion of the Lord who numbers your tears. Jesus has compassion, and often we see it in the Gospels in the face of death. Not because he's afraid of it, not because death is really anything to him personally, but because of the pain he sees on his saints. And here it is pleasing in God's plan to do what he will do eventually to all and to raise up. Jesus comes over and does what would likely be perceived as very foolish, risking ceremonial uncleanness and contamination by drawing near a dead body. But he doesn't touch the corpse, notice. And the reason we draw attention to that is this, just like the last story, occurs by the power of his word alone. It's a power he speaks. He places his hand on the stretcher, but he doesn't place his hand on the corpse. It's his word and its power. And in that, he says to the young man, arise. I say to you, arise. Then you read what is nonsensical, or it should be. It, by definition, can't take place. The dead man sat up and began to speak. The dead don't sit up, and the dead can't speak. But he did. There was a resuscitation, and and by the way, we use that word, resuscitation, to... It is a resurrection of sorts, and we can speak of it in that way, but we, we say res- resuscitation because in resurrection life, we know that comes with a glorified body. We know that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and there's only been one who's ever been truly raised. So yes, is this a raising to life? It is, but it's a raising back to normal life, receiving the same body, not that glorified body. So that's why we say he was a, it was a resuscitation. But it is, a, fr- it is a, a fruit of kinds of the resurrection because it's pointing to the power that Jesus wields. It's pointing to, as, as a precursor, to the power of the resurrection itself. And the dead man, the dead man sits up and speaks. This is the power of God. This is his identity. Now, there are several things to notice here. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, as likely we would say these Jews were, there would just be so many lights shining to past past texts, to prophets, where similar things had occurred, especially Elijah and Elisha. The, The ties here are unmistakable. Both of them perform miracles of resuscitation or these resurrections for women, Elijah does it in 1 Kings 17 to a widowed woman who lost her only son. Elisha does it in 2 Kings 4, and though this woman is not a widow, she's still married, she loses her only son. In fact, the text uses the same wording for what Elijah did and what Jesus does when he says to the mother he gave him to his mother. It's the same wording. Unmistakable ties. And this explains why these people would be saying, hey, there's a great prophet here. Because he's just done what was the supreme example of prophetic power in the Old Testament. And no wonder the response. Verse 16, fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, "A great prophet has arisen among us." And yes, certainly so. When we'd be at a visitation and the line is long and winding around whatever funeral home we're in, and in walks this person, and he comes up to the, the casket and speaks, and, 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 arise, and then and then they rise. Of course, we would be afraid, and yet in awe. A great prophet must have arisen. Among us. So there's this comparison. But then see that there is differences as well that would make them certainly say, Hey, Jesus just did what Elijah and Elisha did. But if you knew your texts as well as they likely did, they would also be saying, And he did it with a whole lot more ease. Because there were differences as well. Both Elijah and Elisha, to carry this out, prayed. They beseeched the Lord God. They had to lay and stretch themselves on the body of the dead person. I believe it was Elisha did it seven times. There's this this activity of identifying with the corpse itself, beseeching and being an intercessor for for this dead person. Jesus raises someone from the dead easier than we order our morning breakfast. That's, That's how easy... And notice he didn't pray, he commanded. Young man, arise. This shows that, yeah, he is certainly a great prophet. And this would likely spark in the minds of the people, but is he more? And that's the point. It should. His identity is such that he is a compassionate lord, a powerful prophet, but but wait a second he's got to be more than that too when jesus gives the boy to the mother they would have seen elijah and elisha these pinnacles of the old testament and jesus has certainly matched them but surpassed them and so now what do they they, they they're left with wonderment they're left with they got to figure out what's going on here and that's what they do there's great disturbance there's great Conversation and, and what had turned from a funeral procession. You just imagine, that this is somewhat comical, actually. You're all dressed in mourning. There's tears on your face, and, and you had to stop in place. And sort of like, okay, I guess we don't need to go to the grave anymore. I guess we're heading back to the, the town. That, that's how suddenly it happens when the way of life meets the way of death. And so fear seizes them, and they say this, God has visited his people. God has visited his people. This is a full statement. This word visited is the same word used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis fifty verse twenty four, in Exodus four thirty one, in Exodus thirteen, nineteen, as well as what Simeon says, or Zechariah, I should say, says in his song in Luke one sixty eight. In each of these places they talk about God visiting his people. In each of these places, it's used to refer to a visitation of the Lord in the context of exodus and deliverance. It's more fulsome than just simply God came here. God did a work here. God visiting his people has connotations that God's delivering his people, that God has come to take them from a state of subservience or oppression or pain and sorrow and raise them up an outpouring of deliverance and mighty acts of power. This is what it means to say the Lord has visited his people. And they recognize that. They recognize that there is some visitation here. But this miracle made them likely expect a coming restoration to prosperity, a coming restoration of their nation. And so they mistake the visitation here. They use the right term, actually, because this is God's exodus. This is God's deliverance, but they don't likely understand all of what it means. They were confused, and they don't see that this is truly the visitation to come. It's not simply a minor, minor reversal of fortunes. It is the true exodus with the true Messiah, and so the identity of the one here isn't just a great prophet. He's the prophet. The Gospels themselves don't comment on the significance of raising from the dead, and that's, very, that's, that's the case in the Gospels. The Gospels just present the story often, and usually there isn't an explanation given by the author. What we should see in this, as well as in other acts that, that prophets or apostles do when there's a resuscitation and, and a precursor to the resurrection and in, in the power to put death in its place, we should see the kingdom at its fullest as the greatest expression of what kingdom life is. New life. Real life that has defeated the last enemy. That's what it conveys about the kingdom itself, and that's what it conveys as well, that Jesus has come with a visitation of life. That's what he brings in the kingdom Jesus holds the power of life. Jesus has authority over death. And here's our theme. I waited for this moment at the end of the service to explain it. The theme, the meaning of these two texts taken together is this. Extraordinary faith is well placed in Jesus. It will result in life. Extraordinary faith is well placed in Jesus. It will result in life. Marvelous faith. That's what we just saw. And here we see it's well placed. Jesus healed the man near death, the slave near death. Jesus just raised someone from the dead. And the faith of the centurion placed in him was well founded, as is ours. As we see the compassion of our Lord, it's well placed in Jesus. It will result in life. And that's very simple. That's not hard to grasp, but that's our hope. How many of us how many of us face the grave loss of loved ones? Again, I think of Hyska's family as they mourn, but, but that's, not, that's not just exclusive to them. How many here in the past year have laid loved ones to death? How many here are afraid of the future, are losing loved ones? How many here are facing that themselves? And where, where is our hope? Will we place a simple yet marvelous faith in Jesus, the one who raises from the dead the way of life itself, and it's well placed. It will result in life. The way of life for all of you meets the way of death, and there's only one outcome. That's why this story's here. No, it doesn't mean that we won't have to die. And that's so obvious we know that. But the reason Jesus just doesn't go around still and in his power, just keep raising all the saints from the dead, it's, it's not as if that's his way of doing it, but he did it here to prove a point that he is the way of life, that death doesn't have any power over him, And that for his people, those in his kingdom, there is only life. And so people of God, you who sit there and grieve and mourn and think of the laments and think of yourself, place yourself in the widow's shoes, Jesus has compassion on you. And the way of life will touch your loved one. The way of life will raise up God's saints. That's the hope of this text. God has visited his people he's done marvelous things it is the deliverance and outpouring of power and actually for all saints we've experienced that in part already the way of life as long as you have true faith has encountered you and your way of death already and has made a new man in you it's already happened and we're just waiting for the body to catch up you hold new life because you have a simple yet marvelous faith placed in Jesus and it will result in life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you to give you praise for what we see in this narrative. A narrative of instruction for us to see what is a marvelous faith, as well as a narrative that gives to us assurance that it's well-placed, an assurance that we see in a compassionate Lord who looks upon the grief and pain and has the power to, to change it, has the power to tell us to not weep, for we know what you do. Lord, we praise you for that, and we ask that you would give to us such extraordinarily, extraordinary, marvelous faith that is a humble, trusting in you. And Lord, we pray for the confidence as well as the hope and comfort that the second story in the text gives to us, that, that a funeral procession isn't the end, that the kingdom comes with the way of life, for you wield it. We ask this in your great name,